Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pro NBA Draft Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Max Carlin, and I'm joined as always by Jake Rosen. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing well today, Max. How are you? I'm glad to be back. I'm doing well because I'm excited for this episode. We are uh, joined again by Henry Ward to talk some some team building. Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Max, and uh, I want to give you a shout out because the intros are getting cleaner and cleaner with every, uh, every future episode, so it's, congrats. It's so nerve-wracking. I'm just like positive that I'm going to mess it up every time. Um, and then every time I get through it, well, I guess I've only gotten through it like once or twice without messing up now. Uh, yeah. But. Max is getting more comfortable, sadly, to the detriment of my entertainment every week, but yeah, I, I can start we'll, we'll applaud him. I could start concocting <laughs> mess ups. <laughs> no, it's, it's way content. better when it's natural. It's gotta be natural. All right. So um, we brought Henry on because Henry has, I think really interesting philosophical views on how to go about team building. Um, so we're going to talk about that kind of broadly uh, and then uh, applying it to the draft context in general. Cause I, I think that there are maybe some issues that crop up that we're going to, that we're going to get into with actually trying to realize this, this um, approach. And then we're going to apply it to the 2021 draft some because there are some relevant guys for this, this sort of view of team building. So Henry, do you want to, you want to just give the whole spiel on, on how you think you should go about building winning teams in the NBA? Sure. Gladly. I mean, I'm happy to go on about it to anyone who's ready to listen. Um, but I'll try and keep it somewhat brief. I've written a lot about it. So there's always a reference point of just going to my Twitter and looking at my, uh, my blog, which has a couple articles written about it. Um, but basically I just operate from the premise, uh, the two sort of overarching objectives in, in team building and putting together a winning product in the court is maximizing space offensively and minimizing space defensively. Um, so basically where you kind of end up after that, after kind of thinking through what the best way to do that is, um, is, you know, barring sort of like the unicorn type prospects of like Anthony Davis, Evan Mobley, even Chet Holmgren, who's relevant today. Um, the most sort of optimal skill sets to do that on both ends uh, are found in what we kind of consider wings who are kind of like, you know, bigger than typical guards, uh, but more athletic, more agile than uh, typical bigs. Um, and with their skill set often sort of being a mesh between sort of the, the best parts of um, guards offensively and the best parts of, uh, bigs defensively, obviously to sort of measured extents, like they're not wings often aren't handling the ball as well as 
smaller lead guards are one-way lead guards i should say um and they're protecting the rim as well as sort of the bigger you know rim protecting centers are obviously um but they're sort of the matrix where those sort of, those two skill sets sort of combined um and not to mention sort of how shooting plays into that which is important but we'll get to something about shooting later um but basically sort of the beyond that when you're hunting wings sort of what do you want to be looking for to me the most viable thing you can have on the court is five guys who are all processing the game faster than the other five guys are playing um regardless of sort of how not regardless of but i'm willing to sacrifice certain skill deficiencies in order to create that product because i believe through history we have seen not through history but through recent history we have seen the most successful teams that outperform their sort of perceived skill level um, are doing so because they have that hyper level processing across they're all every kind of lineup they basically roll out um, and obviously every lineup is is really hard to come by like creating a roster of like nine of these guys is very difficult which i'm sure we'll touch on um, but maximizing it as best you can is sort of the most the easiest way to i guess get the most out of the players you have in the court um, and so basically from that premise sort of how at least in my draft philosophy most is I'm kind of willing to prioritize the uh, the highest fuel guys more than the consensus. Um, and I'm willing to pass on or miss out on the highest skill guys that are pretty low feel um, relative to consensus. Uh, basically the way I see it kind of to extrapolate it out to a difficult thing is it's hard to explain on a podcast um but if we're trying to make it sort of like visual actually sean darenthal of oda odin who now does the stephanie draft podcast did a very good job outlining this sort of idea in his recent james book night episode talking about creation thresholds i think it applies pretty similarly to like feel thresholds i guess you'd call it where um you know you can picture a graph with two lines sort of parallel uh going upwards and you know as feel increases uh, so does the sort of impact to your team, but those lines begin to separate further down the graph you go because the higher feel you get, the more compound, it's sort of like a, an exponential return situation where the higher the feel is, once you reach, you know, certain thresholds, the returns begin to double triple on themselves. Um, and the same applies to a team context where if you have two guys who are super high feel, there's a big difference between having two guys that are super high feel and three guys. And the difference between three and four guys is even bigger. So finding a way to compile basically, so it's a situation where you have four to five very high processing, high field guys on the court together um, at the same time is very important to me. And so that's sort of something I actively seek in scouting is like, who are those guys who have that sort of preternatural feel and processing and can couple it with some sort of value add beyond that, right? Like if you're not gonna play basketball very well beyond that, it's not really worth it. Um, but willing to sacrifice some you know, quote unquote value, I guess you could say in the draft, targeting those players over maybe more skilled players, uh, just because I think that the final product looks much better when you actively target those type of guys. Is there a general point at which you start to believe that the, say, on-ball creation ability of a prospect at the top of the draft is no longer worth it if they are maybe a lower field player? Um, like, where do you draw that threshold? Cause I know that you, you acknowledge that that sort of that on ball creation is necessary, especially, um, when defenses ratchet up in the playoffs, but so where, where is that line for you that you, 
that you start to to discount that that creation enough um the line sort of moves as the level of of feel moves with the creation value right so like if there is um it's got to be a nice coupling of both processing and on-ball juice and i would not you know the higher feel a guy has the less on-ball juice i'm looking for and the more on-ball juice a guy has the less feel i'm looking for i guess you could say so like one guy that you and i have talked about a lot max um is jalen green and like he very closely teeters that line for me and as honestly i've sort of like semi flipped the switch with him philosophically um in terms of like earlier this year i couldn't really see myself ever drafting a guy like that but beginning to sort of come around on how dramatic the space creation is how dramatic the shot making could be down the line um, to where the point of like, you could teach him how to play basketball, you know, quote unquote, how to play basketball. You could teach him how to process things quickly enough so that it's worth investing in that sort of shot making. So at various case to case, it's hard to like give a like actual rubric, um, but would say that like generally you're sort of looking to couple those things as best you can um, and being, you know, exceptionally skilled in one uh, lets you, I guess, lets you is a funny way to say it but lets you sort of skip by on the um lacking in the other to a certain extent too yeah so oh i'll go ahead because i so i just wanted to hit on the point of jalen green because i know henry that's someone we talked about on our locker room show last week and it's someone who were both on the same side of the coin from an evaluative standpoint and identifying the skills that he has and the areas needs to improve but i think i'm definitely more into spending a higher draft capital on him than you are and big part of that is I definitely subscribe to a lot of the points and the overall basis of prioritizing high field players and surrounding those guys with as many, putting as many of them on the floor as possible. But at some point, like Max said, and I hate using the word threshold because we all three, all three of us talk about this all the time is there's always a way to compensate. There's not necessarily a bar that you have to hit where you have to clear it. And I think with someone like Jalen green, he does possess an extremely high skill level and has the tools to, take that game to the next level but we can all agree he lacks the feel and the playmaking isn't necessarily there and the reads aren't there yet but I, what i would say to you is given that we have seen some high skill players and this is a little bit along the lines of what we talked about last week but i kind of want to dive deeper into it given that we've seen some extremely high skill guys make some and i, I do want to say they're incremental like we have never seen a high skill guy become chris paul passing the basketball it just doesn't happen however there is a certain level you can reach where it makes the whole package viable and the feel and the playmaking is good enough. So how do you go about evaluating that from a player development standpoint? And if we're looking multiple years down the line, that's a really good question. So um, I should probably mention, I don't want to go too much into this because I could talk forever about it, but if you want to look more into it, I have like my exposing the blueprint blogs up that explain it, but basically part of the, necessity for seeking out a certain requisite level of feel um, is based on the idea that the best way to drive offense at any level of basketball, college, high school, youth, NBA, whatever it is, is teaching sets of principles more than teaching sets of, of plays or actions. Um, and basically that your objective on offense, the overarching objective beyond, you know, like the grander overarching objective of max maximizing space is to create like a flow state where all five players are sort of based in the same set of ideas so that they all know what the other four players will be doing in a certain moment 
and the other four players know what the ball handler is doing at a certain moment and what the other you know three players beyond the ball handler are going to be doing um that's when you get like the beauty of you know the gorgeous like 2016 warriors like the gonzaga team from this last year like to differing sense obviously but like that should be the overarching goal is not saying you know here are these plays that we have to get these shots I and mean, if you make this percentage of shots we'll win the game it's you know we want these types of shots not like these exact shots we want like the, these are the buckets of shots that we want here are ideas that we can play with that will get us those shots over time and then variants will play how it plays um so with that in mind i fear taking gambles on guys who don't reach a certain requisite level of field because then they tank that entire idea by themselves. It only takes like one horrible link to tank that entire idea. Um, four guys can only buoy it so much, but if you have four super high field guys and one guy who is like trying or like is coming around is not like a lost cause, like a cam Thomas, then you'll be fine. Like, I think then you can have, and especially if that guy's like Jalen green, right. Who's like potentially be like a really good high level, like scoring champion type player. Um, then it's worth sort of like being like, all right, Jalen's going to like miss these relocations. He's going to miss these passing windows. Like that'll happen, but it's worth it because over time he's going to generate enough offense for us that it'll pay off. Um, But that's sort of my biggest hump to get over is like understanding can a guy not tank a flow state offense. And I was originally concerned that that Jalen Green would be tanking a flow state offense. Um, But as I sort of came around, um, saw some of how I think ignite was also a tough situation just because so much of their evaluative context was just like me, you, me, you like Kaminga and Jalen green, like who's taking it now. Like it doesn't promote any of that thinking, but you saw some flashes from whether it be uh pace in the pick and roll um, snake pick and rolls to take space. Like there's some level of reasoning that's happening and court mapping that's happening that would allow him sort of the baseline skills to be able to sort of engage an offense like that. Um, so I think it just requires those sort of like evaluative statements on minutia and whether you think that really can a guy just not be a disaster. And if he's not a disaster and he's as good as Jalen Green is at scoring a basketball, then it makes sense at a certain point. Yeah, I, it's a shame to like mess up a really easy transition there into talking about some examples and that you mentioned the Warriors, Gonzaga, and I think we're going to talk about the, the Heat as well. But I do want to put you on the spot with with one question to find out how much of an extremist you are with this uh, philosophy. Um, so hypothetically, if you had, and these are like kind of ridiculous groupings of skills, but if, if you hypothetically had a 100th percentile field player who is 50th percentile on-ball creator and a 100th percentile on-ball creator, 50th percentile field, which one are you taking? I think it depends on where I'm at contextually with the team a lot but i would say generally oof, i mean it's tough uh, this is like kind of the the answering this question or deciding how i answer the question will ultimately decide like how i rank the guys from like four to ten um yeah <laughs> in this draft but i think ultimately i do lean uh this is this is kind of a hot take well i guess 100th percentile both ways is tough but i do think that you generally are able to find way more 75th percentile on ball scores than you are 75th percentile field guys. Um, just, I mean, obviously percentile is like relative to the, the, the group that you're studying, but like theoretically in basketball, like I think you get some really, really good on ball scores, every draft, a couple or a handful of so. 
Um, whether you won't bet on them being that long-term is whatever, but you get like some flashes. Uh, whereas like the super high field guys, you get like one or two a draft, if that. Um, and so I would take the field guy, especially like size would be a big um, vari- a variable in that sort of equation. Uh, but generally I think I would go with the field guy um, barring that like, you know, I was starting from ground zero. I could be convinced to take the, the high school guy, but if it's like not the absolute tank I'm in, then I would probably go with the field guy. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think it, I think that the like avoiding answering it is probably the move because it depends a lot on what you have. Cause I mean, yeah, cause if you already have a guy in place who can shoulder a massive amount of on-ball load at a really high level, then, then maybe there's more of an argument. Um, but to me, just the, the sustainability of the offense that you get from Kevin Durant, um, like, you know, the whole appeal is that the shots are always the same and they're, they're tough shots, but they're elite offense always. Um, and I think that that is, you know, kind of what makes those guys a trump card in the playoffs that you can just sustain that offense because the shots are the same. Um, so I tend to and- that way. Quickly, I just pulled up Tankathon because I think this is a fun thought experiment of like how many teams right now in the lottery would I take which one for? Um, I think really the only teams I'd opt for the creator type for are like Detroit, Orlando. That's like maybe it. Because I'm looking at like, I'd rather have, for example, the Thunder and the Rockets. I'd rather have... Scotty Barnes rolled out then Jalen Green because I just think that if you have Shea, you have Kevin Porter Jr. Like those are your primaries of the future. Shoot, you're just surrounding them with high field guys. Like that's what you want to create. It's just a high field environment. So I want to take the high field guy. You look at teams like, you know, Cleveland desperately needs that type of player. Sacramento desperately needs that type of player. Minnesota desperately needs that type of player. Um, so I think it just also speaks to the, the, the dearth of those types of players in general. Um, so if you have your chance at one, you got to take it. Or, or or the dearth of them on bad teams. True. That's very true. Yeah. Which, which, I think, yeah. which is telling. I think that helps too. Yeah. I, I think it's probably a little bit more varied than you do. But um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think, it, I think it's a worthwhile point because it's definitely true for some of those teams. Yeah. And th- you brought up a great word that I was going to bring up and harp on later in the podcast, insulate. Um, and I think that's maybe where I might be if we're imagining this as like a political spectrum, like I might be a little bit more towards the middle and less extremist than you, Henry. And, and and the reason for that would be, I do believe there is a high ceiling to a team or a a particular lineup that has four of these guys and one player that like Max said, obviously Kevin Durant, we're talking about an otherworldly shot creator and offensive scorer, but uh, just kind of taking that same approach of, Hey, when the shot clock's running down or when the playoffs and defenses are really tightening up and schemes are pinpoint accurate, we're going to need someone who's going to be able to go get theirs. And as true Hooper and corny as that sounds, it, it does carry a little bit of weight for me at least. And so what I would say is how do you approach chasing? What I would say is me personally, I view having five pure field guys and four field guys and one guy to shoulder the offense. I sort of view those as equally high end outcomes for something that I'm chasing in team building. Do you always shoot to prioritize all five or are you, I don't even want to say content. Basically what I'm getting at is do you feel that having a lineup that insulates 
one high level creator is a step down from the all five high field guys. Well, this is also an interesting point because I think it um, requires us to maybe consider what makes all like the high level creators we're all okay with running an offense in the championship, what's in common with all of them, which is they're also, they're, they're the rare crux of high feel and high skill. Like they're all, all the guys you named are all players I would consider like that kind of high feel that would fit in. Like you would have five high feel guys if your initiator is Luca, Steph, LeBron, Harden, Durant, like teeters on it. Um, you know, name whoever else. Um, that's why those teams are so good that they run is because they're both. The wait is finally over. Football is in full effect and the NBA is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to Bet Online today and use promo code ARMCHAIR to take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. So to me, it's like, you know, the conversations we have specifically in this draft, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, um, but they are, I think, I think Jalen Green's going to be our proxy for most of the day, which is fine. Um, but like Jalen Green's ceiling is not that. It's not the top 10 player in the league for that exact reason. His ceiling is all-star scorer who's a great, you know, fantastic number two, number three next to someone like that. Uh, so you still have to, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're yet to see, we'll talk about the heat in a little bit, but we get to see a team really be carried by one of these sort of median feel on-ball creators. That doesn't really happen. Um, they're more an ancillary piece on a championship team. Uh, so I think that's part of it too. I think it's interesting. I don't disagree with you, Jake, by the way. I think that if you're able to surround you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance in this conversation that naturally gets left out because, it's, you know, we're talking to each other on an hour long podcast. Um, but that there is some sort of like, I think you could craft a team based around a Zach Levine, a Jalen Green type um, with four super high fill guys who are also very talented, maybe not star level talents, but super talented, borderline all-star types, whatever, where you can compete for a championship that way. It's all about, you know, just make, putting the puzzle together. Um so I just do think that that was an interesting point you brought up because I do think that reflects the importance of feel is you can't really be run by a guy who doesn't have that level of feel and be successful. I feel like we're, we're, we're getting into this now, so we might as well just do this before we talk about some of the examples. But um, how weak link of an approach do you think this is? Because clearly, like, you can't have someone out there who is totally clueless because it will just disjoint everything. But like, you know, what's what's the minimum level that you need to attain? Like how, how much does this actually hinge on having that high level of feel across five, all five players on the floor? Um, well, I think that the, the more you prioritize it, the, the better returns you'll get. So I think that there is, uh, I'm confident that a team that, um, you know, was a, a 50th percentile talent team, talent, quote unquote, um, that had, that was also full of, you know, five guys in the 90th percentile of the field would outperform sort of how they were expected to perform 
before they were all put together on the same team. Um, so to extrapolate from that, I think that it's all a balance, but I do think that there is, um, there are certain players I just wouldn't seek out in team. Like if I was a GM, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't consider because I just would rather have a player that's like slightly worse, quote unquote, that fits this better. Um, like an example, I'm trying to think of like what a, a worthwhile example would be. Um, honestly, the Jazz this year are like a good example of making some of the parts uh, greater than the whole uh, or other way around. I mess up that saying. Uh, but if you prioritize those sort of things, you know, the, the Jazz could have hunted like, I, I'm not gonna be able to come up with NBA examples, but more like, you know, juicier, like high scoring wings instead of Royce O'Neal and Joe Ingles. Um, and everyone would have looked and been like, oh, what a great signing for the Jazz. Like so-and-so averaged, you know, 22 points per game on whatever else team last year. And Royce O'Neal is like a role player. Ha ha. Well, the, the returns are happening because Royce O'Neal and Joe Ingles are both like amongst, you know, Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Gobert, whoever else, are all, all those sort of high level thinkers. Um, so yes, there is some sort of weak link to it. Uh, but again, it just depends on like the talent level it's given at any given point. Yeah. I'm just a little suspicious that it's, a, that it's a little more weak link than you let on because if you take Steph Curry and Draymond Green, two all-time intellects, and you put them on this year's Warriors, it's not necessarily that good. And that's like a you know a team that I would say like notably is lacking in high field players outside of two all-timers there. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I actually think so. Yeah, um, maybe maybe I misrepresented myself. I think that there is fully a uh, a pretty low threshold for what the weak link can be. Uh, or sorry, a pretty high threshold for what the weak link link can be. Um, drafting James Wiseman and investing in Andrew Wiggins is the best way to possibly tank a team of Steph Curry and Draymond Green on it. Like I couldn't have drawn a better way to tank that team um, for that exact reason. Like I would have just surrounded them with a bunch of like average, you know, quote unquote average players that all would have just been willing to like catch it, whip, like just swing the ball around the perimeter, cut when you need to cut, cover rotation we need to cover rotation you don't even have to dribble just like pass when you want to pass shoot when you're open cut when you're open and let Steph and Draymond do everything um obviously that's like a utopian way of looking at things but like I would have rather had that than had Andrew Wiggins and James Wiseman running around um so yeah I think I might have have been misleading I think there is a pretty high threshold for the weak link and I do think that it's definitely worthwhile at a certain point to seek you know worse players that think better and react better than better players who don't think that way. Yeah. And we can talk later about how possible actually doing that is, but um, yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk about a few examples of teams that kind of realized your philosophy. And so the first is the old warriors. And I think like the epitome of it is actually probably pre Durant. It's the, you know, it's that um, the 16 warriors team that won 73 games. And it was just, the, you know, the optionality that they had in everything that they did, this idea that everyone at all times is making a ton of decisions, processing a ton of information, and there are all of these different things that you can do um, because of that, because everyone's always reading what's happening and, and, and adjusting to it. Um, it. It produces beautiful basketball, produces, you know, the best offense ever. But I, I think that, like, 
one of the major issues that I that I have at least is what percentage of that is simply that you have Stephen Curry and that when he runs off of a pin down or split cuts or whatever it may be, he complete he, he creates complete havoc um, and you know enables the situation where there are these advantages that that are created off the ball more or less because he exists that these other players who are more intelligent, you know, can capitalize on, but they don't exist without Steph Curry. Yeah. I mean, to win an NBA championship, you have to have either, you know, the, the best player in the league that year or some combination of two to three of like the top 10 players in the league that year. So I think like the championship uh, heuristic is a difficult one because one team wins every year and like often it's the same teams competing for it. Um, so yes, you're, you're to get to this level of, to win a championship with this type of, of play, you'd still need like generational talent on the team. It's not like you're just going to win a championship with much average Joes who are playing this way. Um, I do think it's like, I, I find this team so fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, and every so often I'm, I'm in a situation like this where I feel compelled to Google the roster again. Uh, and I will read you the ro- this, this roster. And granted, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green are all on it, uh, as is, you know, obviously a very good Andre Iguodala. Uh, but this was an NBA champ, or, you know, a 73-win team in the NBA. Leandro Barbosa, Harrison Barnes, Andrew Bogut, Ian Clark, Steph, Festus Azili, Draymond, Andre, Sean Livingston, Kevon Looney, James McAdoo, Brandon Rush, Maurice Spates, Jason Thompson, Anderson Farajal, and Clay. Like, that team overachieved, I think it's fair to say, to some extent. Um, based I mean, on maybe how they... you, have, you have guys submitting cases for the greatest offensive season ever and one of the greatest defensive seasons ever. Right, but those things I don't think can be separated from the greater situation they're in. I, to, obviously, to some extent, to a large extent, they deserve a lot of credit for the individual efforts they put in. Um but if you're if that's if that Steph Curry, that version of Steph Curry is being put in the Terry Stott school of 40 foot high ball screens every game, and Draymond is simply a short roll guy, and Clay is a spot up guy who occasionally comes off like double drags, like does that team perform the same way? I don't know. I think it's both, obviously. That's not like a revolutionary thought. Um, but there is obviously a certain level of like exceptional individual talent that's required to win an NBA championship, no matter how you want to go about team building or coaching or whatever. Um, And that's what, you know, Steph is the reason that that team won a championship. Um, But I don't think it is um, sort of, you know, separable from how the team ran its entire system, which was if you catch the ball and you're not shooting or moving, you get off the ball, you're moving. It just made, we all know what it looked like, right? Like it was the prettiest offense in NBA history by a lot. And it reminds you of like, you know, the early 2010s, like late 2000s Spurs, like all these teams we think of as like, and we'll get into more of this, I'm sure. When we talk about other examples, but like all these teams we think of as like, that team played such beautiful offense. That was like the peak of basketball. That's such fun basketball to play. They all do the same sort of thing. It's all this sort of offense. It's all like high movement, high motion, quick decisions, reactivity, low set plays, um, they don't look that way. Like, I don't think this is a revolutionary idea in terms of how you build a winning offense. I think we've seen it time and again. We can talk more about the Heat and Gonzaga and the Jazz. Um, like, every team that has some level of talent and, 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 and builds a team with this ideal in mind and then executes on the court 
finds a relative level of success compared to the talent they have. Um, that's kind of like the crux of my argument. But yeah, to answer more fully, sure, you do need like to win a championship. You, you still you're always going to need high level talent. It's not going to just come with any kind of system. Uh, but with that in mind, when you have the high level talent, I think you can maximize it this way. So something that jumped out to me when you were reading off that roster, and especially because I was planning to ask about them, about this particular role when I came across Gonzaga, because I just finished up a Gonzaga game and had a thought that popped out. Then big men on that team, uh, Fessa Sazili, Andrew Bogut, and one more, if I'm for, and Looney, Kevin Looney. So out of all the guys that, had offensive touches and prioritized looks those three we cannot pretty much all agree were towards the bottom end of the spectrum and this is something that i was thinking about with gonzaga as great of college production players drew timmy was when gonzaga's offense faltered it was mainly because drew timmy was forcing post looks and had tunnel vision and so what i'm kind of asking you is we've talked about hunting wings because they are, are typically the best just based on sheer size skill and feel combination they're typically the best at, like you said, the two points, maximizing space offensively and minimizing space defensively. I was going to ask you, where do you feel big men fit into this? Because as someone who who typically uh, I get grilled in my DMs and, and mentions for basically hating on big men other than Evan Mobley, Nick, Nicole Jokic, and Joel Embiid, um, I personally kind of have moved away from prioritizing them with high um, high draft capital. And that's why I was out on someone like James Wiseman. Um, I, people talk to me about Isaiah Stewart all the time. Like Isaiah Stewart's still not someone I have a ton of FOMO on, despite him pretty much overachieving in his rookie year. So my question to you would be, where do you feel big men fit into this overall offensive approach? And how do you go about prioritizing, whether it's, it's getting them through the draft or in free agency? And and how do you really go about filling out the roster? Because at the end of the day, we, we can all agree there is a requisite level of rim protection that is needed in the NBA. So as much as we'd love to go straight small ball and maximize out on versatility and creation, it's somewhat not feasible on the other end. For sure. And uh, I think, so there's a few answers to this. Um, first, I'll start and say that team's ability for those three big men specifically to succeed um, partially relied on having someone like Steph. So I give sort of going back to the last conversation we had, um, that is the flexibility an offensive talent like Steph gives you is you can roll out sort of the biggish sort of slower guys like that and not have any spacing problems because you're always going to have two guys chasing Steph. So all those guys' jobs were was basically like dunk the open dunk or pass it if it wasn't open. Um, which granted they were pretty good at, but just like on offense, it was that easy, which many times if you don't have a stuff like player, it's not going to be that easy. Um, second part of that question, I guess, or answer is we can find a lot of those guys, which I think you kind of hinted at Jake. A lot of those guys can be mid-level exception guys that can be not really UDFAs. I think you can kind of get like the occasional one like Freddie Gillespie, um, but they're just a lower, uh, they're less scarce in terms of their sort of market valuation. Um, so you can get, you know, you can get Marcus Saul on the veterans minimum. You can get Aaron Baines on a one-year deal. You can get, you know, so if you want that sort of spacing, immobile big, that's sort of that decently high feel, very high feel in the case of Gasol, like you can find them. Um, and then third of all, sort of like to get into the actual draft philosophy, I think it's very worthwhile to invest in 
quote unquote bigs who have those sort of wing ish skill sets, not wings, like saying they have wing skill sets is unfair to them because calling Scotty Barnes a wing is not, you're going to be disappointed. Um, but the reason I have, you know, I'm so, I love Mobley so much, why I have Scotty Barnes, the top five pick, et cetera. Um, why I think even I, you know, I said this on the pod, other podcast today, like I could easily see Kai Jones being out of the league in three years. And I would still take him in the lottery without question, because there's a chance he's one of these guys, um, which is the, the occasional player who moves like a guard can space a floor, can attack a closeout with a requisite level of skill, pass out advantages and still be big enough and tall enough to like have a more traditional rim protector role where it's not really sort of rim protection by democracy, where it's more of like a funnel it to me and I'll handle it type of rim protection. Uh, that's so valuable. And I think we'll talk about this more with Bam. Like that's why Bam, Bam is the heat in my kind of general estimation like that. Nothing happens last year without Bam and nothing happens going forward without Bam. And I would max out Bam so fast. And obviously they did. And a lot of teams agree with me. It's not like a hot take, but just like he's having that type of player is so valuable. Um, so when you reach that level, I'm really, really happy to invest early and often and maybe even overpay for that type of player. Uh, because there's so few of them and what they do for you is so great. Uh, but beyond that, I wouldn't really, you know, I'm not like grabbing straws at someone like Dayron Sharp, who maybe has it, maybe doesn't, maybe not to like a real worthwhile level, but shows flashes like, I'll just pass on that. Let me get that in free agency. The wait is finally over. Football was in full effect and the NBA is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to Bet Online today and use promo code ARMCHAIR to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point because all of these, the three teams that we have to talk about are that Warriors team, the Heat. Uh, and Gonzaga this past year. And I think they have two things in common. One being a big man who is skilled enough to handle the ball and is intelligent enough to process a ton of information and make a ton of decisions uh, and is skilled enough as a passer to execute passes. Um, all those teams have that, have that in common. And then the other thing that they have is a true, what I said earlier was like a havoc shooter. There are not a lot of those guys. There are maybe five of them in the entire NBA where them by existing, by relocating on the perimeter, by running off of the simplest of, of action, they, they, you know, wreak havoc on the defense. And so it is, you know, Steph, Duncan Robinson, like not even anymore probably, but JJ Redick was, was like that. Um, I didn't, I think that maybe there are one or two other guys who fit onto like Davis Bertans or something like that. Gonzaga, uh, of course, had, has Corey Kit or had Corey Kispert. Um, I feel like that seems so crucial to me in actually unlocking this vision of basketball, where there are all of these breakdowns that you can take advantage of off the ball to generate quality looks. Is that it does? It does seem like it it hinges may, maybe more than you're giving credit for on having that one guy who is a totally special game changing shooter. So oh, yeah. Bef- before Henry, do you mind if I make a quick point uh, before you go? Right. Just I kind of feel obligated to speak on all the Gonzaga stuff because it's so fresh in my head. And what I will say about someone like Kispert is the thing that I find with shooters is 
oftentimes we can see some of the best offenses get stagnant when, when things are going tough. Uh, Michigan this year ran a great modern offense, tons of ball screens, spread pick and rolls, um, down the down screens, curls, you name it. And then when things got tough against UCLA, they all just, just froze. And it's there wasn't someone who was instigating the movement and starting back up these principles. And that's sort of a problem that you can run into, like Henry said, trying to avoid hard cut sets that are robotic and more relying on instincts and feel. And <clears throat> we can all agree that the benefits of relying on principles rather than sets are incrementally more rewarding, but there are times when offenses can, can, can get stagnant. And my overall point with Kispert is sending him off a curl or a flare, anything that starts the movement and it tilts the defense and it gets everyone going. And so I think that's maybe why shooters are so crucial. And just, I figured I'd make that point real quick. Yeah, but it's not, it's not shooters though. It's the, the like special, special shooters who, as, as we talked about before, like don't come around once a draft. They come around once every two, three, maybe more drafts. And sometimes they come from weird places like Duncan Robinson. Um, those guys are so hard to come by. And it, and it feels, at least to me, like they're pretty central to this, this whole vision. I think they're maybe – I think they're more central to the vision than I was maybe giving credit to before. But I don't know if they're so essential that they're like 1A to 1B with like having the mobile ball screen versatile – handling big um just because i think you can still see the effects of uh like a jazz team that is getting looks there's multiple ways to get like this end game formula like it's, there's not one way of doing it so like you know if you have a donovan mitchell type space creator maybe you don't need the don ball shooter that he didn't have that this gonzaga didn't have that so maybe that's why they needed it more um i do think it is you know it does unlock a ton for you um, yeah, I guess my concern would just be, uh, I'm hesitant to, I'm not hesitant to latch on to the idea as you guys have described, because you're absolutely right. I'm hesitant to, um, really like dip my head into it because I feel like that's a great way to make some really bad value picks. Uh, like we talked about Kispert. I don't know if Kispert's one of those guys, but he's clearly being treated as one of them. Um, happy to sort of like go into more of that when we talk next time. Um, but just like, I don't know that Kispert is this like guy who can run off, you know, screens all day and then expect him to make six out of 11 threes, like every other playoff game, like Duncan Robinson was. Um, however, I do agree that if you have a player that is that type of shooter, it is worth, uh, investing in it's just a little trickier because you know for every Steph Curry you have a Jimmer um so it, it it's a little bit tougher and like you said and like you can pull guys like that out of nowhere sometimes like Duncan and it is crucial and extremely helpful just a little bit hard to come by yeah and and I think it is fair fair to suggest that like just because we haven't seen it yet that it's not possible like what what if the off-ball habit creator is Zion curling into the lane like there I, I it's believable to me that that would definitely make sense that 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 starts movement enough and creates enough havoc in the defense that you're you're creating these um these creases that you can that smart players can capitalize on. I definitely buy that. We just I think need to see it happen. And maybe historically there are more, there are more examples of it. Um, 
Yeah, the last thing I wanted to talk about, at least briefly, with these teams was so Golden State obviously won a title pre Durant, and then then they become a whole different beast. Uh, the Heat, you know, went on a crazy run, uh, and Gonzaga was was, I mean, going into the national championship game was the greatest modern college basketball team ever, probably, uh, and then fell very flat. And I think that a lot of that can probably be attributed to a lack of half court on ball creation. Um, and there, it was, it's, it's sad because it was, it was, it was a team that was such a like perfect articulation of this philosophy, right? That like you had this beautiful cutting all the time and the optionality in the offense and just smart players from, you know, down the entire roster. Uh, and then when they were pressured in the half court and taken out of their rhythm and someone had to create on the ball, they didn't have it, and and it was not a close game. Yes, um, without a doubt. I hesitate to say they were that much of an um, they were that emblematic because for that exact reason, because uh, when they were forced in a half court setting, their their principles were very were pretty clearly, in my opinion, just like we are going to run you off the court, and we are perfectly apt to do so. Uh, and rightfully so, because for the first 34 games of the year, it didn't matter at all, and they were 100% right. Um, but beyond that, maybe just out of lack of necessity, there was no infrastructure in place to handle any kind of uh, stagnation. So as we saw uh, in the national championship game, the response was, you know, oh, oh, we're all freezing, we're freezing up, like we're down 14-0, whatever it was, like Timmy, like just get the ball to Timmy, just throw it in at Timmy, throw it in at Timmy. It's like that is the work that is the exact opposite. That is the 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 paradox of like what you were going for the entire year. Like I know that you got slowed down, so your response had to be it's not like you could just run on them all game, but like there are so many ways to create half-court advantages that don't require a ball screen and don't require a post-touch. Um that those are the avenues to explore, not like oh, we need a run. Let's just funnel the ball into Timmy and take 16 seconds off the clock. Like, no, that is the opposite of what you need to be doing right now. Um, but so in that case, I was just, I was yelling at my TV a lot because it was just like, this is not your identity. This is not why you're good all year. What are you doing? And I get the the affinity to do so because there were plenty of times like in the UCLA game, for example, um, where when things were tight, it's like, all right, entry pass to Timmy get two points and let's re- let's kind of recalibrate next possession when there's a defensive rebound, then we'll run. Um, but there was no, like, as I said before, there was no infrastructure in place to sort of have, um, you know, okay, we're getting slowed down. They're just loading up to the ball. Uh, they're stopping our, our semi-transition. What next? There was no next. It was just Timmy. And so I'll go to Timmy. Like, I think if you had some sort of infrastructure in place um, with, you know, double drags, the pass and cut offense that we saw more from the Heat, more from the Warriors. Like, you know, the Heat are – the NBA, I think, is much slower than the college game or can be. So, like, we saw in the in the playoffs, like, the Heat, the way they generated that sort of – all those advantages was just, like, running Hero and Duncan off of, like, action after action out of action. Like, Bam would hold the ball forever if he didn't get a look. Like, just continually, like, it was funny just, like, roam around the perimeter, like – Oh, let's go to the left wing. Nothing there. All right, we'll dribble, kick it out, dribble back to the right wing. Nothing there. Like, okay, now we'll go for a floater. Like, none of that was happening with Gonzaga. Um, so I think there is a way to sort of manufacture half-court advantages that 
doesn't rely so heavily on semi-transition that Gonzaga just didn't ever touch on. Yeah, so I think the national championship game was really interesting for a couple of reasons. And one, we all, I was talking about with some other people, it's Gonzaga and Michigan suffered from the same thing when I already hinted at it in the UCLA game. And Henry, I know we were talk, talking during that game where, where Michigan just couldn't create actual advantages. They were, they were just getting contained at the point of attack. They went away from their motion principles and just settled for post entries for the last 15 minutes of the game. And Hunter Dickinson has been an absolute force all year, but when you get that predictable, the defense is going to react. And I think that was the biggest thing with Gonzaga and maybe why I, I do tend to prioritize. And I'm, again, we keep coming back to Jalen Green. I don't know if it's Jalen Green because I don't know if I would tr- entrust him with that large of an on-ball role to necessarily tilt a defense. Like if Jalen Green was on Gonzaga, I don't necessarily think the result would have been any different is basically what I'm trying to get at. However, I do think it is worthwhile and there are certain principles that should be applied where Gonzaga was attempting to run this motion-heavy modern offense with three guards who I think we can probably all agree are, are better off as secondary off-ball guards in Nemhard, Suggs, and Ayayi. And that's not necessarily take away for anything from them individually, but it is worth noting that when you're going up against a, a team that has the point of attack defenders, and obviously Davion Mitchell is otherworldly in this aspect because of reasons that we mentioned earlier, but when you do, or are going up against a team that can switch like Baylor can and can contain the ball like Baylor can, and there are teams like that in the NBA, it does present a smaller margin for error with these set principles if you don't have someone who can reliably break down the offense, like you said, without a ball screen, without a post-touch. Yeah, I mean, it, that happened in Illinois too. Um, you know, Loyola just like did the Loyola thing and we're like, you're going to – we're going to take the ball for 30 seconds. And like, if we have to shoot an awful shot at the end of the shot clock, so be it. Uh, we just don't want you to run on us. And it worked. Um, the flip side of that though, Jake is like the, um, it's really hard for any individual player of any on ball creation ability to overcome general stagnation that those teams faced in the half court. Um, so even if you have like a Jalen green, even if you have, you know, like what Jordan Clarkson looked like in college. Like that's how you buoy those stagnate. Like there were clearly times in the tournament, um, I'm trying to think of like examples. There were plenty of like teams in the tournament that just like it, UCLA is honestly a great example. Like UCLA in the end of close games, just like, like, all right, Johnny, like go score. And he did every time and it was hilarious. Um, but that's not reliable. And no, nothing Johnny got was like open or quality. It was all like, eight dribbles into like a contested 17 footer. And he was just making them like good for them. Um, But point being, it's kind of impossible to overcome that level of stagnation, regardless of the talent you have on your team. So in my opinion, so it is, um, it's not like you can have those sort of players, the Jalen green types just rolled out and be like, well, we're impervious to offensive stagnation because we have all these guys that can create all the space off the dribble. I still think you're going to run into the same problems because just the level, the way that the basketball is now is like every college team and every NBA team has a bunch of really tall guys with long arms that you can't just dribble through no matter how good you are at dribbling. Like it's just, there's a certain threshold of impossibility there. Um, some guys are better at it than others, but I do think that stagnation is just generally something you have to avoid conceptually because no one player, no two players can overcome it by themselves. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. 
There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. I mean, I kind of would argue that transcendent players can, though. That, like, and, and, if, and if, you're, if you need, you know, you need transcendent talent to win at a really high level, you know, Kevin Durant is kind of impervious to stagnation. Like, it, or, yeah, or it's like, like James Harden. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that like that, you know, that's kind of what Kobe Bryant's career was, right? That like mm-hmm. the shots were always the same. Um, so I think that you've like if you're if you're talking about transcendent players, which is what I think you're ultimately shooting for in team building, um, that it it is kind of the trump card. Yeah, I mean, it is a trump card. I just think the threshold for that is higher than people like to believe sometimes in terms oh, of it is. drafting it for, for sure. that player. Like, I think that the one guy in this class who maybe is that is Cade and like, then it's, that's it. Like that's fully it. There's no, I, I don't see a, a way that maybe Jalen green, like maybe Jaden Springer, maybe no way, but like maybe uh, that's it. Like it just Cade. So at that point, I'm just saying like, if you're going to be drafting on that premise of like, well, we can draft this player because he can unstagnate our offense. Unless it's like probably the best player in the draft. It's probably not true. Yeah. But there are, there are levels to it though. Like if, if you're, you know, if you're not shooting for title contention, you, there, mm-hmm. there are levels to stagnation proof that could make you a playoff contender. You know, there are a lot Certainly. of guys. There are a lot of guys in the NBA who can do that. Who can Certainly. Do- I think my this is all coming from the premise of building a quote unquote championship team. Like, how do I get closest to a championship team? Like, of course, if you are a mid-market team that's missed the playoffs for 12 years in a row, like Minnesota or something, and you like have a shot at a playoff contention like that's all you're really shooting for of course you can like manufacture that with guys like Jalen Green um but to get to that overarching level I think it's much harder yeah and I think that this transitions us nicely into the feasibility of this um and yeah I'll go I'll go out of order with the outline because I kind of started to answer that question but um like if you hypothetically have a guy who has the intellectual capacity and the skill capacity to be because like, i mean like you, you like you acknowledged like you're not winning a title without the best player in the league more or less anyway or that caliber of player um you have a guy who satisfies the you know the intellectual and skill requirements to be that guy 
but you don't have the surrounding roster for whatever reason, which, which is not even necessarily like a fault of team building. Like that's one of the other things we're going to talk about is like, how often do these guys actually come around that satisfy your requirements? But like, if, if you have an inadequate roster, otherwise, do you try to be this year's warriors or like, do you just spam Steph Curry high pick and roll 50 times a game? That depends on multiple things. The biggest one that comes to mind is like timeline and, and context. Like if I had a, a, a team of like a bunch of young guys and Steph, um, like Steph's on the way out. So, say it, say it's just one year. Say it's one year you're trying to assemble the best team possible in that year. Your talent is such that you have this one transcendent player who is, you know, I mean, Steph Curry, whatever percentile he is in, in mm-hmm. on-ball skill, and intelligence it's about about as high a combination as you could have um Mm -hmm. and i mean and say you have then a surrounding roster of guys who are lower field um, just like the current warriors yeah say say you're the current warriors are yeah are you spamming high pick and roll with steph or are you trying to do what they're doing no if i if if it's like the current year warriors and i just care about how we do this year uh i'm just gonna put the ball in steph curry's hand as much as possible minimize everyone else's touches uh have it be Draymond and a lot of the on-ball actions and play out of there and probably just play three shooters around them um, and hope that they make open shots. Uh, yeah, at that point, sure. That's how I would do it. But I don't think, uh, I think I'd be a pretty bad GM uh, if I was like just playing that way in terms of like thinking for the one year sort of, like I don't think the, it was wise, regardless of how Wiseman turns out or doesn't turn out or, or what type of player he is really. Um, I think it was unwise for the Warriors to be like, yeah, let's pick Wiseman because he'll maximize the quote unquote, maximize the Steph window. Cause he's like a center with a lob. That's a lob threat that can maybe space that can play with Steph. Like that's a little bit of sort of like flawed process to me. I think that you're better off. I, I, I don't see a lot of team context beyond like, you know, maybe this year's Lakers, this year's Nets, this year's Sixers, maybe. Like, I think you're always, 99% of the time, you're better off shooting for long-term viability than than short-term success. Um, so I just think that, yeah, at that point, I would be willing to concede, like, yes, I for this year's Warriors team to get the most wins possible, Steph should be holding the ball for 20 seconds of every possession. And the other four seconds he's not holding it should be the one where the guy is shooting it. Um, so... Sure, but I think that that's just not a way I would ever really, barring a few occasions, design a team or design a, an offense or a system for a certain team. And we're going to call that part one because we're going super long. Um, you can follow the pod at Prep2ProPod on Twitter. You can follow Jake at Jake in the Paint. You can follow me at Max A. Carlin. And please check out Henry at Henry W. Ward on Twitter. He is criminally underfollowed. Um, and on your, on his timeline, he'll be, you'll be able to find, uh, a link to the recent stream that he did with, uh, with PD and, um, and links to whatever he's, he's writing, which is always must read content. So check that out and we'll be back with part two in a couple of days.